know, the less said about the cat, the better. <laughs> but in case anyone doesn't know about that little weird thing, that's a good example of how life can just kind of pull up on you. About two years ago, I discovered Twitter, and if you've ever used Twitter, it's you put a line in, and you're basically blogging, except that you're putting in one line at a time, which can work or not work, and I looked at that medium and I said, what would be interesting at that juncture? A cat? <laughs> so I made it so that this cat says what he's up to at any given time. And this went on for a, a good year and a half, but it was an automatic process. I wasn't sitting there being the cat. And when um, Twitter set up a new thing where they wanted all these people who were coming in to enjoy Twitter, so they would suggest to them someone to sign up with, my cat became one of them. <laughs> so as you'll want to follow CNN and JetBlue and this cat. And in fact, I, I saw a speech with the founders where one of them was giving an example of using Twitter. And he said, right now you use Twitter, you log in, you log in with CNN, Sockington and the cat, and then you follow what's going on. So for, anyway, so this cat has now got 800, it's 5,000 followers a day. I don't get it. If you had told me this was what I was going to be the most famous thing in my life for <laughs> six months ago, I wouldn't have believed you, but now I've got to believe you. Um, uh, just an enormous amount of shirts and things, and there's a book deal, and movie people follow me, and so on. But, <laughs> yay. Anyway, so, but, you know, that's not what I do. I, I've been famous for other things before over time, and by famous, I mean internet famous, the kind where I can still go to the supermarket and be happy. And Ken describes some of that. Uh, I know Ken for a number of years the vintage festival circuit and the computer history world and so on. And I love Juice GS, so it was nice to be featured in that. Um, so, uh, he brought me in here just to give a kind of a overview of my thoughts on history and computers and so on. When I first started out with computers, I was in my teens. When people ask me now what I am, uh, I sometimes say I'm an archivist, but primarily I'm a historian. Um, even though I'm not that gray and I'm not that old, I do have this enormous interest in history. I have loved to find out what happened before me, what happened when I wasn't looking, what's happening now, and then trying to save it for later generations, for people to understand things. And there's a number of ways that I illustrate this. Uh, one I mentioned for informally earlier today, I was giving a speech to some kids who were all in their 20s, and I asked how many of them had ever actually touched an Atari 2600 or an Atari VCS, and only three out of the 30 had, because for them there would be no reason for it. And when we talk about our own histories, we tend to use shortcuts. We tend to say, well, this happened and it was like this. So I listened to the radio without really a full explanation of what listening to the radio was. And with computers, we're finding more and more, you'll describe the use of a computer. And people will nod their heads because they're coming up with these analogs for what they do. Um, I have a uh, key fob in my pocket that is two gigabytes of space. And two gigabytes of space is more data than I collected in my 15 years on EBSs. It's more space than I need to have every Atari 2600 cartridge or to have 
files that at the time represented a declaration of an entire night's use of my phone line to get, you know, this whole aspect gets very quickly lost. People take a look at something like a movie that was shot a number of years ago and don't realize that it was done by cutting things by hand and that it wasn't all fed into a nonlinear editor that gave them access to all of the footage immediately with no penalty for cutting things up. So for me, computer history is particularly fragile because you're talking about what is primarily, certainly after the 1970 period, a commodity, a thing that is sold to people for them to use, and that as its primary drive. Here's all of this great computer technology, you can do a bunch of things, and we can get it to you for $29.99. There's this very strong sense of consumerism, and with consumerism comes this really strong sense of kind of disposable technology. So much of what we, perhaps in our youth, interacted with is gone. Um, joysticks that we liked, or games that we played, have in some ways survived and in some ways not. And my job as a historian is to try to save as much of that as possible. Um, one thing that I find people fall into is something I call the game of firsts. This especially happens when you're the oldest person in the room or the oldest to deal with it. And the game of firsts is trying to describe when something first happened. In other words, to say, well, it's nice that you kids are instant messaging, but we were doing that on BBSs. But before you were on BBSs, there were people who were using it on military networks. And before military networks, you have access in Telegraph, where they were doing out-of-stream messages to be able to send each other messages uh, in their off time and set up things and have things done. You never know what the previous analog was, so instead I just focus on the fact that there's this interesting continuum of history, of which the Apple II is a very important part of. Uh, I call the Apple II a product of love. It's one of the few computer uh, pieces that actually just kind of exudes the sense of love, which I think comes from Wozniak's outlook on life at the time. It's so easy to open. It's so easy to add things to it. It invites you to do so. Uh, Apple's history along other lines, of course, changes this, but the Apple II stands in that way, the sense of here's this wonderful piece of machinery and do what you want to. If you break it, buy another one. You know, there's not a sense of break it and we're going to come for you and stop you, um, which is where we are getting to now, where hardware and software starts to take on a feeling of being leased or rented than being owned. So. I'm very fascinated with the Apple II because that was one of the first computers that I ran into and one that I could not own until much later in my life because what surprised me, and I don't know how many people have interacted or remember this this way, but in talking with people for my documentary, I found that there was a real class division between Commodores and Ataris and Apples because Apples were unusually expensive. And to one extent that might be interpreted as, oh, so what you're saying is the rich kids bought apples and the poor kids bought the others. And the answer is no. It's when people bought an apple, it was a major sacrifice, usually for the children or for themselves. It was like buying a second car. And that means that when they bought into it, it was a sense of, 
you are going to do something with this, and you are going to learn how to use this stupid thing because we can't go to Disneyland this, this year. <laughs> so you are going to buy this, this you know, we, we just lost this huge chunk of change for this thing. Make it do something cool. Um, and then you would have said And so you, you know, that sense of it, you know, now looking at these computers is not as easy to understand just by looking at the hardware, which is why I also collect stories. When I did the PBS documentary, as Ken mentioned, I ended up going around um, Canada and the U.S. interviewing as many people as I could about bulletin board systems, but also about computer history, being someone who grew up at a time when people were first really going online. Um, I'm involved in a project right now, a very weird project. I'm backing up GeoCities. And the reason I'm backing up GeoCities is because GeoCities is going to be shut down on October 26th this year. And GeoCities was one of the primary ways to do web pages in the 90s. At one point, GeoCities was the third most visited site on the internet, which is astounding to think of now, but it was. And the fact is that the millions of people, GeoCities represents their first time reaching a worldwide audience. Before that time, to even have a color printout, a color print made, represented economic hardship if you wanted to spread it to hundreds of people. And with the utilization of web pages, you could have full color, worldwide accessible web pages. And so people who they may in that moment, in creating that web page, be the most read, most accessible member of their entire generational lineage in their family, took that time to make sites, many of which utterly blue. And I mean just terrible overviews of stars or ponies and just self-absorbed poetry. But so many others did so and did something with it that I think was really special. The example I give is somebody created a massive history of the Roma of the Gypsies with family trees and knowledge. And when they were going to shut down GeoCities, all of that was going to disappear. Um, I have found websites that were set up in 1995. And so now here it is 14 years later. and good portion of these people are dead. They don't really have any thoughts on this website. So a group of us have been sitting there desperately copying it as fast as we can. And with bulletin board systems, there was this period where all these kids went online using their computers and were able to communicate. Again, families who previously might not have ever interacted with people outside their state except for special occasions, could now have their children or themselves communicating nightly. And it's a complete change in how we communicate. So when I was young, I used to print out all sorts of documents and save all files. I'm not quite sure why I did it. I think it just all fascinated me. So when I got to my 20s and I wanted to go see what the internet had to say about bulletin board systems, found out there wasn't very much at all. In fact, it was so hard to find information about bulletin board systems online in 1998 that I started a site containing all of these files of text, and I called it textfiles.com. 
The original mission was simply to get my old information up where people could see it. And what people got from it was not my problem. A lot of things aren't my problem. It's not my problem to figure out what's the use of doing it, or what it could be used for, or if it's accurate, or if anybody's even uh, going to be entertained by it. I work just to make it accessible because other people find meaning in it that I could never dream of. And if I modify the system for what I think it's good for, I take away from all those other people what they can get. So I work very hard to do it so that you don't ever have to deal with the weeds to get to the data. Um, there's a, the, the mission of textfiles.com was originally bulletin board system text files because that's what I had uh, in droves. And those are in extreme variants. There's Apple files where people have um, meticulously created lists of all the peaks, posts, and calls. Information that still obviously would have use to you guys. Um, there's people who have walkthroughs for games you can't possibly find anymore. There's people who have written terrible poetry, people who have written files about how to modify payphones so that they can make free phone calls, and you can still do that as long as you have a time machine. And you, you know, you have all these pieces of information, some of which are accurate and some aren't. Um, what I didn't really realize was that um, by doing this in 1998, all the kids who were 11 who went online um, found files.com. And textfiles.com doesn't have any ads, and it doesn't have any weird links you have to click through, you don't have to pay me, so it's just kind of this big dump. It's like walking into a store and just anything you can read as long as you want to. And I am now being contacted by kids who are in college who basically for their entire online life have only known my site as being the site that was always there for them that they could go back to and look things up. So it's been very eye-opening. I didn't expect to be a repository myself as much as being a memory of that. So textfiles.com's purpose grew over time because even though the text files are important, you might not know what else is important. And there's a lot of other missing information. So one thing that's always kind of fascinated me are Apple II Pirates, more than most. Uh, there's a lot of things that kind of rise from the Apple II piracy scene that kind of interest me, both art-wise, programming-wise, just how they function, how they distributed things. Um, so I decided to set up a honeypot for them. And what I did was I went through something like 300 or 400 Apple II games uh, that were emulator discs, booted them up, took a screen grab of the crack screen, and then put it on my site, and then by hand transcribe the names of all the pirates who are mentioned. So what happens is in the last five or six years, pirates will look up their own pirate name and walk into this pantheon of piracy, of which their name stands among all the others, and they contact me, and I immediately try to get as much of their story as possible. Three different people have contacted me that are interesting to mention. Um, the one that's probably the most interesting for most people is Krakowicz. Um, most people who would read his name is Krakowicz, but he explained to me it's Krakowicz. Um, he won't tell me his name. I found it through other means, but let's play the game and say I don't know his name. He certainly never told me. I know that he's in his 60s. I know he's run several aerospace companies. 
Um, at the time that he was doing this, that he was doing Apple II piracy, he was a father of two and was basically dedicating his garage to Apple stuff. And he wrote a very famous series called Krakowicz's Guide to Cracking. And he explained to me that he had a friend who was very, very sick and depressed and very suicidal. And what he took an interest in was kind of technology. So Krakowicz had figured out how to crack a whole bunch of games and started writing how-to files to his friend to keep him interested and help him get out of his funk. And this is the core of what became the Krakowicz's Guide to Cracking. The moral issues aside, it's an interesting side effect to understand why these things sometimes come about. So Krakowicz and the other guy I mentioned, the Freeze, both did something very interesting on the Apple. Um, to pirate these games, um, obviously there were enormous amounts of traps built into the systems, and the cat and mouse game between the companies and the children who are basically cracking them are just legion things where the um, program will have a loop that indicates that it's doing all of this checking, and you take the loop out because you don't want it to do the checking anymore, and the game destroys itself because another part of the program was checking the checksum of what you just took out to see if it was there, and this entire thing was nothing, and nothing cared about it. It was this thing. That sort of game. Um, what the Freeze and Krakowicz independently both did was modify a boot ROM, an F8, so that when you boot, it would act like it was the normal one, and then as soon as the program finished running, it would change itself out. That level of technical expertise of interaction with the machine level of these machines, to me, is fascinating because I don't know if, especially in today's obfuscated world, if we're going to see quite the same thing as much. I've been kind of watching kind of what kids have been doing given the Xbox 360 and the Wii, but the number of people who can do it are extremely small and usually have some sort of fabrication at their behest, which automatically makes it very small group. Back then, somebody with enough gumption could actually bootstrap themselves to understanding these things at such a level that in both cases, these men went on to be millionaires. The Freeze um, was one of the Apple II pirates who I interviewed who was very big on being on camera. Um, he was one of the top five value-added resellers of computer equipment in the 80s and 90s. He's worth tens of millions of dollars. But he always loved his Apple II and his Apple II history. And he wanted my movie made so much that at the end he said, that at the end of our interview, he said, so, I mean, is this a financial hardship for you? And I said, well, it's difficult. And he said, okay. And a week later, a check for $10,000 showed up in my mail. And that helped me when I was making my movie in arguments with my wife, because she would say, I don't think we can afford to go here. I'll go, well, I'll pull it from the Frank fund. So if that's, what, that's the reason why Frank Segler, who's the freeze, is thanked as one of the three people in the BBS documentary on the packaging, because um, I think he really helped push things. And he, um, he took such pride in the work he had done, outside of its moral aspects. He was just so proud and would accomplish something and learn something that when he then used that to get his career, um, both these stories are human stories. 
they're stories of people and how they interact with technology. That is what I really deal in. That's the stuff that gets lost. You can look at an entire directory of emulator images, but that will tell you nothing of the blood, the sweat, the tears. You can look at, an, at the peripheral, you'll have no idea where it was manufactured, in what fashion, and who fought where in Apple to make this happen. You, you'll see that some slot is set up wrong and you won't know why. Like, one day we'll find out who it was that made it on the Apple Macintosh so that the, um, the, the and I'm talking about the later model Macintosh, the one where the CD just didn't quite come in and out of the packaging correctly. Yeah. It was like there was this one case where it was the CD, it was totally manufactured this way and it just had some problems leaving. And that was somebody's job, and that was some reason why that didn't happen and it got pushed out anyway. And there's a human story there, and I'm fascinated by those human stories because they help you understand why choices were made. Um, I'm in a documentary about hackers from a few years ago, and one of the things I said in it was, computers don't naturally get faster. Like if you have computers and technology and leave them alone, they won't get faster next year. Somebody killed themselves for two years to make them a little bit incrementally faster. You know, the modern disk drive has been described as a disk drive head the size of a, being the size of a, a jumbo jet, able to drive over an area the size of Scotland and focus on a blade of grass. And it's an enormous engineering feat. And all that comes from people not from just things sort of getting better. That's why I take an interest in it. The third group of hacker, uh, crackers I was going to mention were the Apple Mafia, who were located out of Minneapolis, and who I dealt with uh, as a young kid, seeing their names around. And tracking them down for my documentary was one of my great happiness. There was a guy whose name, um, unfortunately I'm remembering his name is Matthew Dornquist, which was his real name. And well, that's the thing. Yeah, well, that's what I'm mentioning it for. Matthew Dornquist had a hacker name, which I'm now totally forgetting. But in 1982, 1983, he made a graphical client for bulletin board systems so that you could connect to this kind of a machine and it would send out drawing signals and draw pictures based on it. This is years and years before what most people think of as being the ability of a machine that's a server to send graphical stuff to a computer in some sort of way. He just kind of did it. And he was part of this piracy group who were just cracking these games because it fascinated them. And again, all of them have kind of gone on to great success as their own people. And the moral aspects I've quizzed them on are kind of ambiguous, but again, very fascinating to understand what their motivations were and where they went. So, you know, that's the kind of stuff that I think really gets lost in today's world when people look back at this old stuff. And the fact is, is it's going to happen again, right? It's going to happen again with the Nintendo Wii and the Xbox 360 and so on. You know, there's this watershed maneuver with the Xbox 360 and the Wii. This is when it is now uh, young children who are 10 or 11 who are getting onto these machines are now thinking it weird that you would go to a store to buy software. And that when you bought the software, you would get a box and you 
couldn't put the box near a magnet. Um, when I, when I, I knew things had changed when there was a CD game that I bought in 1997 that said free magnet inside. <laughs> um, you, know, you, you, don't, you, don't, you lose that sensitivity to that, and they're losing the sensitivity to the idea of an artifact software being this artifact that you purchase that comes with things. Um, there's some ancillary stuff with like figurines and stuff, but those are just considered related products that are considered part of the package, and the package is being lost. We still have in the Xbox 360 and Wii this built-in system that tries to describe things as packages, so when you buy a piece of software, it has what looks like box art. And I think one more generation of this, and we're not going to have that at all. And so that's a piece of knowledge that now has to be explained, as every other bit has to be explained. And I do want to make it clear that as somebody who is 38, I need to have horror memory explained to me, and I need to have working with punch cards explained to me. My knowledge of it is only based on the dead artifacts that lie in piles and sometimes in things that I get. Being somebody who collects as much as I do, this makes me a magnet for people who want to get rid of stuff but feel guilty about throwing it away. So there's a lot of stuff that I have that I have simply because somebody said, I am not comfortable throwing this out, but you look like you'll take it. So as a result, I have the Apple II that Zork Zero was written on, and I have a pile of old magazines that was just donated to me by one of the co-founders of the Free Software Foundation. And um, I have very old nine-track tapes and piles of shareware CDs, piles of Macintosh CDs, old disc magazines, another thing that's kind of heading on its way out. Um, the CD on a magazine, like Blender, where you would get the magazine and it would pop up with this terrible QuickTime event that was made in a very early macromedia program and would very show, you know, rotate between 12 frames to let you know if this was an interview with a rock star. So those are kind of going away, and I've got those, and I try to turn them into duplicated forms and put them up. So, Ken very quickly mentioned the genesis of the BBS documentary project. The reason for the BBS documentary was because I had decided one day, wouldn't it be neat to make a listing of every bulletin board there ever was, since we're almost done with them. And so I started using FidoNet bulletin board lists and kind of augmented them together into one big list. And within two weeks, I had 30,000 listings. And this got on Slashdot. And Slashdot totally pulverized it, but more importantly, sent it out to even more interesting people who would contact me. And over time, you could submit your own entries, and people were doing it, and I was adding them. But I had an area for comments, and people started to write 20, 30 paragraph content, uh, comments about various bits of bulletin board system history. And I realized that that was, that was the moment when I had the epiphany of like, wow, I need to get these people before, they, before they're gone, because that's where the real story is. So I started to work on a bulletin board system documentary. I have a film degree, which I proceeded to incredibly not use from the time I graduated until I was 29. So it was just a small leap to buy a camera and start talking to people and look for volunteers. I had 500 people volunteer to be interviewed. I ended up interviewing probably 150 of 
It was very critical to me when I did something on the bulletin board system that since bulletin board systems were about people communicating, that they be just people sometimes, that it not just be five interviews with famous people and then just put a whole bunch of shots of 1940s film of computers going by. So I was very, very uh, happy to get just someone who ran a bulletin board system right next to the guy who invented Phytonet or the guy who invented BBSs and so on. And it was very informative. It took about four years. And uh, I was asked if it was worth it. And it's, it's incredibly worth it on multiple levels. One of them is that I really got to meet all my heroes. In fact, I think just recently, within the last year or so, I started running out of heroes to find and have kind of moved to second-tier heroes <laughs> and vague memories. Like, I saw him on TV once, or I played that game. Like, I think right now, I think I'm down to, like, Bill Budge. I think Bill Budge is the one that's left. Um, it's like Bill Budge. I mean, I got to meet um, Russ Wetmore, who did Preppy. And I got to meet Scott Adams, and I got to meet a lot of the Infocom guys. And so on, you know. And that's been kind of the other payment. Plus, at 30, I kind of started to be really insular. When you're insular, you know, you start to stay in one state. You go to other places for a couple minutes, but you come back again, really. And you don't want to really spend too much time with people who are kind of not on your same wavelength and stuff. And you kind of start to really kind of build up these little walls. And it was so nice to randomly go to a state I'd never been in and go into a random person's home and talk with them about stuff. Because we had this little bond uh, over bulletin board systems. And so it was like the online world helped me so much in the offline world. So just for that, for being able to be able to walk up to anybody and talk to them about their history and feel comfortable with it, um, is, 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 I mean, is, is incalculable. Um, the reason I started to work on two other documentaries, of which one is the main one right now, was simply I said, what else affected my life like bulletin board systems? And the answer was text adventures and arcades. So that's why I went that direction. Um, the Text Adventure documentary has been shooting for about two and a half, three years now. Um, and I'm editing it as we speak, and I hope it'll come out. Um, I'm just assuming people know what Text Adventures are, but I'm basically saying that these games where you type something in, and it tells you what happened. That's the core side of it. But um, at one point, Text Adventures were the number one games. Um, five of the top seven or eight spots on the software lists were dominated by Infocom for some of the weeks in 1983 and 1984. And we don't quite get that the same. We get sort of that situation with EA now, but not quite the same way. And these were all games that had no graphics. And I think that right now we're in a period where there are a lot of people who don't actually believe that actually happened. <laughs> and they'll throw all the lift service at the door because the word means something to them. And they'll mention it grew and the land. But that's about it. So I wanted to go back. And it turns out that the original adventure is based on a real cave. It took a year, but I got into the cave. And so that was very informative because the rooms are basically set up like the game. And it's very weird to be down there. Um, and so it was worth it, right? And I don't recommend it for everybody. It's not an enjoyable tourist situation. It's not a cave. There's caves in Mammoth Cave, Kentucky, that are designed for tourists. Not one of them. And in fact, it's not even, I wouldn't even say it was a difficult cave. It was painful to go through in some places, but apparently it was a middling level cave. 
and they were telling me about some of the things in the expert level games that I, uh, anyway. So the best time for someone to tell you about that story about the cave that had the spiders as big as dinner plates, which is a phrase I never want to hear again, <laughs> is not when you're in a cave. So anyway, because um, what they do, of course, is they haul you down into this little dark area and they start telling you stories of horrible things they've bumped into over the years. Getting back to computers. Um, so, you know, when I first found out about this festival, it fascinated me because it's a really, really tough sell on its initial high-level description is come to a dorm room and talk about Apple IIs for five days. And to some people, the reaction is, where do I sign up? And to other people, the answer is, what hath God wrought? <laughs> <laughs> and and it's, it's interesting to me because, you know, that's the very reaction people have with computers in the early 80s. And they have that reaction with a lot of other aspects of, of like, when something doesn't make sense to them. And I'm, I'd always hoped to come out here, and Ken finally gave me an awesome reason to. So I was very happy to come out to this event. Um, I'm only here for a short time, unfortunately, but I'm, I'm available to talk about whatever you want to. One of the side effects of the years I've spent with textfiles.com, I celebrated 10 years this year, is um, I come into contact with an awful lot of trivia and an awful lot of stories an awful lot of claims. And you start to see patterns in various things. You have the guy who claimed that he was the first to invent this. You have the inevitable lawsuit. Um, believe it or not, I was actually involved in a very vague way with a, not so much a lawsuit, but a patent case with IBM. Somebody had patented the BBS, which would have been awesome in 1978, <laughs> except that it was 1998 when he patented it. <laughs> it got it got approved in like 2003 or something stupid like that, and then they were going around threatening people, including IBM. The patent was for a message base in which a topic is mentioned as the header and discussed. And so it was me <laughs> and an IBM lawyer and Ward Christensen who invented the BBS, and we're all on the phone talking, going, nah, I think we can find precedent for this. <laughs> um, it's funny because, you know, I, I've, been, I've seen some really interesting lawsuits go by where people do this, where they'll just patent air. Um, and it's a sad situation. Um, and that's part of what's kind of nice as a historian, is to be able to just go, you know, like an example, here's an example. Um, um, I, in my bulletin board system, um, documentary, there is one episode which was very hard to make about why we all use zip files. And it involves alcoholism and destroyed lives and so on. And it, uh, it's often the only time I had something break down the camera when they were talking about things. And people don't realize this trail of human misery that precedes the zip file. But talking with one of the players in this, who did not willingly come on camera, he kind of just dropped the line. And the line was, yeah, I kind of came up with the name Zip. Because it sounds sexy, zipper, and it zipped like fast, so you knew it was going to compress things fast. And 
you know, that's sort of bullshit. And you ignore this to some extent. But I remember that he had said this. And I have in my collection shareware CDs from 1991, including version 0.97 of Zip, in which this person was thanked for coming up with the name Zip by the guy who wrote the software. So without that artifact, this guy's, you know, toothless sailor at the bar going, I invented that first, um, would have been ignored by me, but is in fact true. Um, so much of that, uh, you know, it's not so much a t I told you so, but just that, oh, you were right. Um, because so much information goes by. That's, that's another amazing benefit of just having all this stuff out there. Um, I have collected music. Um, for a while, I was collecting every podcast. Um, I stopped that project not because I was tired of it, so much that it was being done better by other organizations. Um, there was a group called Podango that was a site that you could have podcasts on, and one day they decided to die. And they did it in a real classy fashion by sending out a quiet email to their customers who were running the podcast, not their listeners, that things weren't looking very good and maybe you want to get your stuff down in the next week or so. And they sent this out on December 23rd. And it was three years of hundreds of hours of people talking. And I love collecting old podcasts because what better way, it's like the world's largest anthropology and sociology experiment. Have people talk about stuff relevant to them for hours and record it. And you make them do all the work. And so I went and I just downloaded Padango because nobody else was around. And it was 67 gig, which wasn't so bad, actually, it turned out. Um, a lot of low bandwidth things. And I just grabbed a copy. And that's what started me on the, the, the role of archive team. Of like, let's archive what we can. And when I collect these things, I immediately try to make them up and available for everybody as fast as possible. So anytime people talk about anything using podcasts, there was a period of time when I was famous for the podcast thing. This was about a month. It was about a month I was the podcast guy. <laughs> um, I've been a lot of the guy things. I've been the podcast guy. There was the fake nuclear bomb plans guy, a situation I don't want to talk about. <laughs> there was the BBS documentary guy, now the, the, the Sockington cat guy. Um, and in each case, you know, what happens is, is that the the tsunami of interest comes, and people go, why the hell are you what you are? And that's kind of the core question, and that's, I'm sure, what you encounter if you start describing Apple II stuff to them. And they're like, why are you like that? <laughs> and the answers, I think, are pretty simple. Like, this technology interests me. I used to use it when I was younger, and I still adore it. I know for me, there's a personal vibe that I remember saving up for weeks to buy Pac-Man, the Atari 2600, which is probably the largest betrayal you can get out of outside of incest. Uh, you know, just literally booting up that machine and seeing crap and realizing.
was like, this is what I spent a month and a half not having a candy for. <laughs> and somehow convincing myself that this was, this was great. <laughs> and as, a, as an adult, the ability to just download all the ROMs for it, just to glance at them and go, see, if I wanted to, I could own all of you now, and then put it aside. I choose not to. Um, really kind of sets that part of my childhood back into its appropriate context as opposed to the time. Um, you know, I do collect, uh, there, there is like that whole debate about piracy versus ROMs, whatever. I collect those things mostly because I use them when I'm trying to verify information. So someone will claim that there was a 3D game, a good one, of course, with 3D games, right? You, people go like, oh, there was Doom and there was Wolfenstein 3D and then, eh, that was something else, but then it was, you know. And there's an Atari 1982 game called Way Out. There is a game before that for uh, the Play-Doh system called Ovalet, of which one of the people who, were in who was in charge of working on Ovalet in the 1970s was a young man named Silas Mariner who then goes on to write Wolfenstein. So you can find this lineage going back 30 years, right, of, of first-person shooters if you want to play that game. And having these old ROMs enables me to at least cleave off periods where someone goes, oh, you know, like, I found out, for instance, that John Romero worked for Infocom. It was a contractor basis. He still stuck an Easter egg into what he did. And he did it just for two months. But he did. And I have stuff to prove it. Now, basically, uh, they needed to be able to put some of the Infocom games on an Apple II. And his company wrote a simple OS that was minor, that would boot up an Apple II into an Infocom-compatible environment. You know, just one of those linkages where you're just like, oh, I didn't even know. You know, you think, you know, uh, that, that, that someone like John Romero shows up over here, doesn't show up there, and so on. You know, you can find, um, you know, it's funny, too, because you can find Apple II stuff everywhere, right? find that the guys who did Mortal Kombat did Apple II games before that. Um, again, there's, there's companies like Sirius Software and Synapse Software that because they disappeared, people have forgotten what influence they had. Um, I can remember being college, uh, computer camp at a college in 1984 and seeing the Bilestone and that had totally shifted what I thought computers could do. Um, outside of its violence aspect. I didn't even think that you could have multi-player location tracking being portrayed with multiple camera angles across different, you know, this was just, I was so happy that I was able to make a maze on the screen. And I realized at that point that I had so much room. You know. So, um, rambling aside, um, this, you know, event, right, is again another part of history. I know that there's always talk when you have an event like this that has a huge heyday and less spectacular heydays and there's always the discussion of like, will this be the year, we'll do this again, or what do we want to do with this, or whatever. But I just want you to be aware, you know, every time you do show up and every time you do play a part of this, you are part of the history. You do things here that have reverberations everywhere. Um, you know, I'm a big fan of reporting everything you can understanding where things came from, pulling things up. And I think that 
what I have found is that the real history, the real spectacular stuff is not in the data, not in the printouts, not in the peripherals that you're able to rescue from dust piles, but in fact the friendships you make and the conversations you have and the phone conversations that you have afterwards and the email, even when it goes terribly sour. In fact, sometimes that's incredibly interesting because you say, what are these two fighting over? And the guy says, he left his disc drive cable in my car. <laughs> and, you know, that human history, that, you know, without us, the machines would just beep and eventually run out of power. We are part of the computers that make it beep. That's what I like about the Apple II, is that Wozniak smiles every time you boot one up. You have to get a real sense from it. <laughs> you know, I've met the man on like multiple occasions, right? And I've watched his kind of lineage. There's some beautiful old files I have of Wozniak from like 1982, 1983 period when he's still like the salesman uh, long before he refashioned himself as the suddenly rotund philanthropist and loving character of, of Segway fame. Um, it's really interesting to see his outlook because he's an engineer and a salesman, but he's really just kind of an engineer. And he's been in way too many meetings by the time he's, you know, 81, 82. And he doesn't do those as much anymore. And it's interesting to watch his progressions of character. We wouldn't have that if we didn't have those, those old documents. So, so like I said, it, it's, it's, I really encourage you to keep doing what you're doing. It's really important. It is important. It's very, very important to me and to history that people still maintain these machines, these pieces of history, find new ways to use them, show younger generations what can be done because we are working so much now to black box everything off of them. You know, the, the iPod Touch is a sexy piece of machinery that doesn't want to give up its secrets. It doesn't want you to open it. It's not happy about it. If you open it, you might find its battery and replace it. And it, it, it is a different world. It's beautiful and it's shiny and it's oblique. And there's something about the slightly shiny, very beautiful beige aspects of the Apple II that I still continue to care for.